Welcome to the First Friends Church Podcast. This month, we are celebrating the Christmas season with our sermon series, Open the Door. During these weeks, we will see how God has chosen to open the door and invite us into a relationship with Him, despite our rebellion and despite our sin. God wants a personal relationship with you this Advent season. So Merry Christmas, and now let's go to our Christmas series with Pastor Nathaniel. Have you ever met someone with a uh, truly weird or unusual name? Do you wonder where it came from? I have a friend in Brazil who claims to have an acquaintance, and I have no reason to doubt him, um, but the acquaintance of his um, was named Madenuza. <laughs> truly, made in USA. Apparently, the individual's parents saw this phrase on some product, sounded it out as one word, gave it a Portuguese accent, and gave it to their child. I would assume that if it were today, it would be far more likely that the person would have been named Madinshina, <laughs> unfortunately. Usually, when parents name children, the first consideration has to do with what the name sounds like. The meaning is often second place. We search for a name we like, and we may not even check the meaning. Or if we do, it's, it's a secondary action. But in the ancient Near East, and even more specifically for the people of Israel, the opposite was the case. Right? The meaning of the name of a child was everything. And there were some doozies, as you may or may not know. Um, sometimes God intentionally stepped into the course of human events and told parents the names that they were supposed to give their children. Hosea was supposed to name one of his children Lo-Ami, which means not my people. I suppose he could go by not for short. Have you thought about that? What would, hey, not, come back. Or Ichabod, or Ikavod, as it would be in, in Hebrew, meaning the glory has departed. How's that for a name with which to saddle a youngster? The glory has departed. Could be literal when they leave a place. Well, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Throughout redemption history, God has often communicated His truth through names. And God intervenes with His prophets, with His people, and as we're going to see today, with His own Son, to speak what their names should be. And his reasons are often theological. They communicate something of his nature and of his purpose in this individual. I believe that the focal point of the story that the Shawls read for us this morning about Joseph is the two names of Christ. The first, Jesus, the specific one that Joseph is told to name the child that's coming from Mary, and then the, the prophetic one that had been uttered generations prior, which was Emmanuel. If you don't have a hard copy Bible with you this morning and you'd like to borrow one uh, for the rest of this service, the ushers will be coming back down the aisles now with more copies than usual for one service. And um, if you can catch their eye or raise, their hand, raise your hand, they'll be glad to give you one. And you can follow along. This reading is in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and um, the story that was read this morning was verses 18 through 23 of Matthew chapter 1. It's interesting also that not only here to Joseph, but in the Gospel of Luke, 
Gabriel, the angel, when he appears to Mary to tell her about Jesus coming, and not just Jesus coming to the world, but Jesus coming to the world in and through her, he tells her again specifically what the name of the Christ will be, Jesus. Now, a quick aside here. The word Christ, uh, it's not Jesus's first name or last name. It is a title. It means Messiah or promised one. So, when we say the word Jesus Christ, the word's the name, we're saying Jesus the Messiah. And it's often used, though, in place of his name, like we might with the word judge or pastor or professor. You might just use that term, that title, instead of the person's name. But I suggest that in this passage, God communicates high theology in naming the Christ. The first name given, Jesus, communicates what the Christ will be. And the second name, Emmanuel, communicates a hint of how he will be what he will be. For many of you, this is information you already know, are very familiar with, and have been aware of for some time, but I would like to invite you, challenge you today to listen anew to the truth of who Christ is and what he came to do so that together we may open the door of our hearts to Christ, the Savior. The name Jesus in Greek is the name Joshua in Hebrew. You may have heard it referred to as Yeshua. The meaning of that Hebrew word is Yahweh saves or God saves. So there it is, friends, right in Christ's name, God the Father defines the life and work of God the Son. He defines him by name as a Savior, one who saves. And there are a couple implications in this name. And the first is simply that people need to be saved. Or, as we would say in Ohio, I'm learning, people need saved. All humanity is under threat and in danger of being destroyed. And generally, people are unaware of this danger. They're ignorant of their need to be saved. To put it in terms that we can relate to, Imagine all of those people in the the, the Twin Towers on 9-11. Just moments before the airplanes crashed into them, did they have any idea that the length of their lives, the remainder of their lives, was down to minutes? They were in dire peril, but the whole country, we were all entirely oblivious. And that's the case of much of humanity about to fall to utter destruction and eternal suffering, but totally unaware. But if the Son of God is the Savior, then the first obvious implication is that humanity needs Him, that we need to be saved, that we need a Savior. But then the second implication of the name Jesus is if humanity needs to be saved, we need to be saved from something. And again, the angel defines this for Joseph clearly. When we consider salvation and what God has done for us, I think we can at times slip into wrong thinking. We consider ourselves saved from evil and saved perhaps from the devil, saved from an outside threat 
that's about to overwhelm innocent people. But before Jesus was even born, God makes clear that humanity needs to be saved from sin and not just any sin, but our own sin. He will save His people from their sins. That's what's spoken to Joseph. And the word theirs right there is possessive. In other words, those sins belong to each member of the human race. We're not helpless innocents caught against our will by an evil power. We are born into sin as a state, but then we have chosen sin as a behavior. Each of us has. We are guilty. We're trapped. We are imprisoned. We're enslaved by our own choices, our own rebellion, our own pride, our own sin, and its consequences. For someone who is addicted to some kind of chemical, alcohol or other drugs, if their addiction is allowed to run its natural course without interference, these individuals will eventually die of their addiction. So there's a sense in which they have to be saved from their own desires and compulsions. And we are all born into an addiction to sin. And we will eventually die of and in that sin. And when the Bible talks about death, it refers to it on two levels. The one is physical death, which everyone will experience. But the death that follows or even comes concurrently with physical death for those who are still enslaved to sin, who have not been saved, that second death or the spiritual death is forever separation from God. As long as we're on this earth, no one will experience what it means to be entirely separated from the presence and providence of God, because He is at work here, and He is present here. So as long as we're here, we have not fallen into the spiritual death that Scripture describes, that separation of God from God forever, and that state is called hell. It's permanent and forever torment, because to be separated from all goodness and all mercy and all power and all joy of the Almighty God forever is to suffer torment. And as we're all born addicted to sin, we're eventually going to die in that sin and be separated from God forever. This morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, you need to hear and it's, it's, it's not something that you probably expected to hear on Christmas Eve morning. But you need to hear that you are in danger of destruction because of your own sin. You've heard me say, for those of you who attend here regularly many times, if we're honest with ourselves, we will all acknowledge our sinfulness. We will all acknowledge that we cannot be perfect. There are instances in which we've tried, and we look back at the, the history of our individual lives, and we can see just devastation and brokenness and rebellion and sin and selfishness. If you have come to Jesus, 
If you have surrendered to Him and believe in Him, then this morning, you need to be reminded, we all need to be reminded of just how amazing His salvation is, that He has saved us from literal torment and destruction. He has saved us from our own sin, our own choices. And this is why repentance is the first step to receiving Christ's salvation. Because repentance acknowledges our sin and it acknowledges our need for someone outside of ourselves to save us. If you need a visual of that, it's the person drowning and someone throws them a life ring, but they say, I can do it myself. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. And they never reach for the life ring. Jesus Christ, Savior, Messiah, has thrown the proverbial life ring to all humanity. He has offered it. We'll talk a little bit more later about how he's done that, but he's offered it. And we cannot blame anyone but ourselves if we choose not to reach for it because it is within our grasp and it's been placed there by the authority and power and sacrifice and love of the Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ. The first name mentioned in this passage shows that the Christ will be a Savior, the name Jesus. The second name, the one that was spoken prophetically generations before, reveals a hint of how he will save. Christ will be called Emmanuel. One of the greatest reasons for gratitude and joy in Advent and throughout the whole year, that God in Christ will be God with us. This was revolutionary then. It's revolutionary now. No other religion, no other faith teaches such a thing that the great almighty deity was willing to take on humanity, a body and a human nature, and live as a person with his creation. And though it is not fleshed out fully here in this passage, it's hinted that he will win the salvation for his people in some sense by his presence with them, his accessibility as people live their lives. Our God did not just reach down from heaven to earth. He came down. And he didn't come on a tourist visa. He didn't come on a fact-finding mission or to see the sights, or to check up on humanity, he came down to become one of us. He came into our mess, into the world that we have broken through sin, into the reek of rotting human souls, and he lived the life that we live. In 2011, I had an opportunity to visit Bethlehem, and I remember going into the church of the nativity, where there's, they believe that this may have been the, the location um, where Jesus was born. And um, as, as we were preparing to enter, I was desiring a, a, an experience. I wanted to feel the, the, the presence of God. I wanted to be moved. I wanted to, in short, have an experience. You file down into this room, and supposedly there's this slab of some kind of stone, 
And, and tradition has it that this was the slab that formed the bottom of the manger. So this was where the baby Jesus was laid by, by Mary. And I, I don't know, I'm skeptical, but it's there. And um, you can stand in line and you can reach through this little hole and you can touch the stone. But as we move down into this room, again, I'm desiring this experience, this, feel, this feeling of, of connection with God in his presence. And it's just absolute chaos. And it's people shoving and pushing and jockeying for position. There's no line. It's just a horde. And everyone's shoving toward this spot to try to get their hand through that hole and touch this piece of holy slab. It was the opposite of what I had wanted or imagined. So I'm kind of being carried forward toward this um, hole in the ground um, by this crush of people, and I eventually get my moment. I put my hand and feel it. Feel, guess it was really interesting. It felt like stone. <laughs> and as I began to kind of work my way back against the, the tide of humanity, um, I, was, I was really disappointed. And then... It was as though, no, I would not say it was as though. It was, it was the Holy Spirit who just communicated the reality to me that that's what Jesus came into. Not that same experience. I'm not saying that, um, you know, there was this crush of people at, at his manger. But he came down into the absolute chaos of humanity. Broken, messed up, loud, selfish, pushing, shoving, Sin, self-focus, rebellion, violence, all of that, that's into what he was born. God with us. He came into our mess, into the world that we've broken through sin, into the reek of rotting human souls, and he lived the life that we live. He walked the paths that we walk, paths of pain, um, physical and emotional and spiritual, paths of suffering, paths of disappointment, paths of rejection, paths of joy, and even the path of execution, of crucifixion, which we know about. In other words, Jesus lived death, the one universal of life. He lived everything that we live except sin. Interesting to to consider that as much as sin is destructive, we do derive a certain pleasure from it. That's why sin is so easily an idol, because it, it does promise us some kind of good feeling or something. It promises us something, and so we go after it and we take it. But that's the one thing that Jesus never lived. And yet, he still lived the consequences of sin. So he, he lived the consequence of sin without the pleasure of sin. I've told you before the story of um, the terrorist grenade attack um, when I, in 1991 when I was working on the mission ship. And uh, Joe Parker was my boss on the ship. And um, just kind of instinctively, this grenade came flying in from nowhere, and he, having been in the military, immediately recognized what it was, and he turned around, 
He was sitting on the floor. He jumped up. He turned around and he threw himself at me. And we fell back um, as the grenade went off. And Joe had, um, I had some shrapnel on my foot and some other places around the body, but Joe had major wounds all up and down his back, all up and down his torso. And um, he took the shrapnel that was coming at me. And Jesus took the consequences of our sin, which is that death that was coming toward us. He's not God distant. He's not God far away. He's God with us, Emmanuel, who set himself between us and the consequences of our sin. And he did that on the cross because the wages of sin is death. Death um, in two ways, physical, but then the separation from God. Remember what Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he experienced something in that moment that none of us have ever yet experienced, which is separation from God the Father as Jesus carried the consequence of all the sin of humanity. So we have a couple options this morning. And the question we have to ask is, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to God incarnate who comes to earth, came to earth as part of his creation and lived as part of his creation and died as part of his creation and he died so that, or maybe a better way to put it is in dying, he set himself between us and the consequences of our sin. So the the option that we have is to dodge, right, is to dodge so that Christ is no longer our shield, so that the Savior is no longer placed between us and the consequences of our sin, and therefore we will live those consequences forever. Or we can look at Christ our shield, Christ our Savior, Christ Emmanuel, God with us, and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are the Lord. And I surrender and I submit to your salvation. Isn't that a a weird thing to say? I submit to your salvation. I submit to you as Savior. Because so often the things that we most need are the things that we most violently resist. Now, for some of you, this may be the first time you've heard this kind of vocabulary um, or heard about Jesus even. Maybe you have heard, but until today, you have still chosen to not believe that Christ is the Savior and that He is God with us. The Apostle Paul um, was one of the first missionaries for Jesus. And in one of the letters, Paul traveled around after Christ ascended back into heaven, and I'm not going to go into Paul's life story, but he traveled around much of the known world at the time. 
And he established churches, just gatherings, people who had come to believe that Jesus really was the Messiah, that He really was the Savior, in all these different cities he visited. And after visiting them, he wrote letters back to many of them. And we have those letters um, preserved for us, some of them, as part of the Bible, Holy Scripture. So, at one point, Paul writes to the church in Rome. It's one of his longer letters. And in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 9, Paul writes this to the Roman church. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's a roadmap. It's an inner and outer belief in the heart and confession with the mouth. In other words, it's not something we do hidden. It's, it's private in that it's internal, a genuine belief that Jesus is who He said He was, that He lived the life that Scripture tells us He lived, that He died a death in our place, and that He resurrected and lives forever. But then we confess with our mouths that He is Lord. And confessing that He is Lord, if we're truly confessing that, 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 there's an implied surrender and subservience to all that He is. The devastation of sin is that it separates us unequivocally from the presence, will, and life of God. God can't abide sin, so to be restored to His presence and His life The sin question has to be dealt with. That's why Jesus came to save people from their sins. And though at this time of the year, we're celebrating Christ's birth, we celebrate it, as has been said many, many times, in the shadow of the cross. Because the birth of Jesus is the first step on the road to the death of Jesus, His death in our place paying for our sin. So if you see this morning how devastating your own choices have been, and no matter how hard you've tried, you just can't do it, you can't reach that standard of perfection, this morning, this is an opportunity for you. The Savior has come. This is your moment to take that act of the will, to choose to believe that Jesus is the Savior, that He's here, present, God with us. It's important also, friends, we really need to see this. The angel in the dream tells Joseph that he will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word his is limiting. He does not say he will save all people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The blessing is that through the cross of Christ, God has given anyone and everyone an opportunity to become His. That's called grace. He has given humanity the grace to choose Him. Will you choose to become His people? Because His people are the ones who realize and admit that they need a Savior and choose to believe that Jesus is that Savior. Now, for those of you here who already believe in Jesus, you have already confessed with your mouth, Jesus, you are Lord, and you believe genuinely in your heart that He's been raised from the dead, 
then what I've had to say this morning for most of you is probably repetitious. You've heard it many times before, and that can lead sometimes to us taking for granted the greatest gift ever given, and that repetition can sometimes dull the poignancy of that truth. Familiarity breeds contempt, as has been said many times before. During those two years that I worked on the ship, I have this one very vivid memory um, of walking into the dining hall one morning, about 11 o'clock. We were coming into port. (coughs) I don't remember um, in which city we were or which country, but um, a number of the kids who lived on the ship, because the the, the leaders and the officers of the ship, um, their families lived on the ship with them. And there was a line of probably six or seven kids, I'm guessing ranging between, you know, seven and ten years of age. And they were each at a different porthole, like this, looking out the windows of the ship as we rounded this point, um, and suddenly this city and its harbor became visible. And I remember one kid just saying, hmm, I wonder what country that is. Totally disinterested because they'd seen it all before. Every couple of weeks, they're in a new port. Every couple of weeks, they're in a new country. They've been doing this their whole life. They've been traveling around. And that excitement or joy that some of us may get from a trip, a new country, a new city, eh, done all this before. In Psalm 51, David writes a verse that I've shared with you before. Um, restore to me, he says to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say restore your salvation because the salvation wasn't taken away, but he's saying restore to me the joy of that. Sometimes that means we need to be reminded just what we've been saved from. We have been saved from our own sin. What blessing and what joy. So let's celebrate the Savior and celebrate his salvation. This is a reminder that the birth of Christ heralded that blessing, right? It brought it in that we live still every moment in the light of his presence. So let's take some time this morning for gratitude and thanksgiving to God to be revived in our hearts. The joy of his salvation restored to us by the power and presence of his spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth, for living, dying, rising, so that you could save me from my own sin and depravity. And secondly, and I'm just going to make this very brief, but I want to challenge you in this. Are you actively pointing and leading others to the Savior who has saved you? Even as we look ahead to next year and our theme for that, which is empowered to proclaim um, this incredible joy, this incredible salvation, but I don't really want to share it with anybody else. Today, as we're reminded of these truths, we should also remember that Emmanuel is not God who was with us. He is still God with us. He's here now. No less accessible than he's ever been. Even to the point of living his life inside and through his people and his church by his spirit. May we live in his light May it shine through us. May his salvation keep us, guard us, and lead us into his righteousness. And this morning, together as a spiritual family, we celebrate what we call communion.
or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. And communion, you've, you've heard me talk about it before, it's a very powerful sign. It was instituted by Jesus with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. We call it the Last Supper. But what this sign points to, it points to the power of the resurrected Christ who lives in his people. Because even as the the physical bread and the physical juice go down into our bodies and nourish our physical bodies, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus And his life in us, the fact that he took the penalty, all of that penalty for our sin, and in exchange gives us life, that truth nourishes our souls. That truth gives us life. And that's what we both celebrate and remember when we take communion together. So this time I would invite those who will be serving communion to go ahead and come forward and take your place at the tables. And as I speak the the words of institution that Jesus himself spoke um, when he was with his disciples, then you can go ahead and serve one another. And before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, Savior, Jesus, Emmanuel, come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom your captive people, captive in our sin. Thank you that you have already released many of us. Thank you that whether we are released or not, you have already taken the penalty for our sin. Thank you that we have the opportunity to, in a sense, act that out today. And I pray, Father, for each of us as we receive um, communion, as we celebrate together, that you would restore to us the joy of the salvation of the Savior. For it is in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup of wine. The cup which, in the Passover celebration, was left untouched symbolically for the future coming Messiah, That's the cup that Jesus took. And he passed that cup also to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink it, each and every one of you.
you will be invited to come forward row by row by the ushers who will make their way down and come. You just come to the table. You'll first receive the bread and then come across and receive the cup. And then you can return to your seat. As we're doing this, we'll be worshiping and singing. The music will be playing. Um, and we will worship the Lord together in various ways, by singing, by hearing, by eating, and by being together. So ushers, if you would come now and you can begin dismissing the rows, come and receive. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. One way you can connect further with First Friends Church is through our website, firstfriends.org. There you can learn about our equip groups as well as our upcoming events for all ages. On Sundays, we gather at 9 and 10.30 a.m. and we'd love to see you there. Have a great week.